This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, open our eyes this morning. Amen. You get a short opening prayer this morning, given the length of the reading. And uh, sometimes I just preach on one, two, or three verses, and it lasts about 20 minutes, so do the math, 41 verses. Brace yourselves. A baby is born deformed. A young person is killed in a car wreck. Your close friend suffers the ravages of cancer. You face a long and lonely bereavement. Why? Why is there so much suffering in our world? If you're dishonest or cheat on your wife, should you expect to get sick? Is suffering God's way of punishing people for their sin? Sadly, there are plenty of people who will tell you that that is exactly the way God works whether from Buddhist or Hindu perspectives of karma or a Christian fundamentalist idea of judgment, there have always been those who are quick to ascribe blame or point the finger or use their religious credentials to tell us that they know why. They know why people suffer. They have it coming to them. Common sense tells us that there are situations where there clearly is a connection between one person's behavior and another's suffering. If you drop bombs on cities, people are going to get hurt, and we know why. Or with a crack baby, we know some of the why, or the rape victim. And yet so often there are no obvious explanations for suffering. And as much as some of you might be disappointed to hear me say this, we have to live with the fact that regarding many questions in this life, we simply don't have all the answers. How can a loving God possibly allow this or that? I don't know. If God is all-powerful and if God is all-good, then why do bad things happen? Well, I can't give you a complete or satisfactory answer to those age-old questions. And yet that said, the very questions themselves give us, I believe, a hint that suffering is not the way things are meant to be, which itself can point us to God, who not only created the world good, but also came to restore that which is broken. Now, I'm not going to be giving a full-blown sermon this morning on suffering, but it is the background to our passage from John's Gospel with this man born blind and the question the disciples asked as to why. But this passage also goes beyond that question and introduces another question. In the face of all our why questions, the challenge is to ask how well do we see? 
whether or not we ever get satisfactory answers to why, why we are plagued with suffering, why bad things happen, we can nevertheless still have eyes to see God's work and have confidence in God. The account of Jesus healing the man born blind is all about seeing and knowing and understanding. This passage won't answer all our why questions, but I believe it can enable us to see more clearly, to love more dearly, and to follow more nearly the one who came to be the light of the world. A hundred years ago, Archbishop William Temple said of this passage, the man blind from birth is every man, for it is part of that sin of the world which the Lamb of God beareth away that by nature we are blind until our eyes are opened by Christ, the light of the world. Well, this morning, I want us to take a look at this wonderful story from John's Gospel and look at the story, look at the narrative through the eyes of the various people involved. The reactions of the people who witnessed or heard about this healing miracle of Jesus tell us a lot about spiritual blindness, which, as we will see, afflicts people in many ways, some subtle, some not so subtle. First, there are the disciples. The gospel reading began with Jesus walking along with his disciples and they see a man blind from birth. And sadly, it seems that the disciples were more interested in the theological why questions of this man's suffering than they were with the man himself. They don't seem to be that bothered about him. What they're bothered about is why. Who had sinned, this man or his parents? And so in the minds of the disciples, like many people of that era, people suffered physical conditions like blindness as a direct punishment from God for sin. And so they're puzzled. How can somebody who's born blind have sinned? I mean, did they somehow have some prenatal sin, which seems pretty ridiculous, or was it his parents and now it's punishment? Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of this passage, puts Jesus' response to the disciples in this way. You're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. I wonder how often do we do that? How often do we ask the wrong question instead of looking for what God can do? How do you react when you encounter someone who is suffering? Is our first response to look for how God might be at work in that person's life? Do we have compassion like Jesus did? Do we ask what we can do to help? Or are we too busy looking for someone to blame? We all know we're gonna encounter numerous situations where there aren't any easy answers. And we certainly shouldn't try and make some up. But what we can do is shine the light of God's light. We can bring God's love into the darkness of grief and pain, of loneliness or failure. This is our calling. 
to be people who by our words and our actions bring God's love and grace into the middle of heartache and suffering. The disciples were blinded by their intellectual questions and their lack of compassion. They were blind to the needs of the man who was in front of their very eyes. All right, that's the disciples. The second reaction we encounter in this passage is from the neighbors. What did they make of all of this? We might expect that the miraculous healing would have had a profound effect on them. After all, presumably, they had seen this blind man on the streets begging all of their lives. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who'd seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, oh, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it's someone like him. Meanwhile, he keeps saying, I'm the man. But they keep asking, then how are your eyes opened? They were skeptical and disbelieving. And the neighbors are busy literally arguing among themselves, talking about him, while the man himself is right there in front of him. Excuse me, hello, you know me. I'm right here. I can see. He could indeed. The problem was they couldn't or wouldn't. Why were they so blind to see what had happened? I wonder, was it because throughout their lives they'd actually so distanced themselves from this man that they just don't know how to respond? Did you notice that although he was their neighbor, no one spoke his name? They describe him as beggar. It was as if he'd just become part of the background, someone who was not really worthy of their recognition or concern or talking to. Perhaps if the neighbors in our gospel story had seen the man as more than a nameless beggar, they might also have seen the joy on his face and sense that God was at work. Likewise today, if we are unconcerned for what God is doing in the people around us, we may miss opportunities in our own lives as well. I wonder, are there people that you see week by week whom you don't really see because you've kind of given up on them as hopeless cases? Well, the God that we worship, the Savior whom we follow, is the God of hopeless cases and lost causes. He is the Lord of life and the God of miracles. I think one of the ways we sometimes miss out on what God has done and is doing is that our expectations are too low. Let us ask God to help us see as he sees and to do the work and the works that God sends us to do in Jesus' name. All right, well, the third vignette is in this account is... Well, it features the parents. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who'd received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answer, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now, you would think that of all the people in that town that day, 
the parents would have been those who were rejoicing with their son. These parents had an opportunity to stand with their son on the greatest day of his life. They had an opportunity to fall on their knees and thank God for what he had done for their son who had never seen the light of day. They could have rejoiced. They could have identified with their son, the former blind man who was a beggar. Why aren't they taking him on a tour of, of the town to see the sights that he'd never seen before? Their son, who formerly had to beg for his existence, is now free of his disability. You'd think they'd be throwing a party, or at the very least telling everyone who would listen, Oh boy, he can see. And I, I just find this very sad, how they actually react. It seems they had been blinded by their fear. It seems they didn't love their son or God very much. The man's parents, who could see physically, remained blind spiritually to the amazing thing that had taken place. In their blindness, they withdrew from their son because they were afraid of the consequences of countering the Pharisees. I wonder, are we ever like the blind man's parents? Are there times when we choose to do what is acceptable in the world's eyes and keep quiet rather than tell of God's goodness? Do we love the world's approval more than God's? Are we ever blind like the parents of the man that Jesus healed? Well, the fourth group is uh, the Pharisees. And they were blinded by their legalism, their self-love and their pride. They refused to listen to anyone's voice except their own. And it was their arrogance that kept them from Jesus. They had no interest whatsoever in this man that Jesus healed. Whereas to Jesus, the man was someone who needed help. To the Pharisees, he was someone to be used Someone who might be useful to them as a witness against Jesus, whom they were trying to trap. This time, on the grounds of having broken one of their own man-made Sabbath rules. And in their arrogance, the Pharisees were willfully blind to what God was doing. And their blindness eventually cost them their lives. There are none so blind as those who will not see. Or as Jesus puts it, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Jesus made it clear that unless they would admit their need, they would remain in their guilt. The religious leaders were so certain that God could not possibly have done a miracle through someone who had broken their Sabbath rules. Therefore, the miracle ascribed to Jesus simply could not have happened. You know, today, people don't dismiss miracles on the say-so of religious leaders. I wonder whether the power of the Pharisees is replaced by the power of those who tell us that the super supernatural is not real and that the material world is all that there is and so no matter how well attested to by the evidence some will say well miracles don't happen when the pharisees start to cross-examine 
the man born blind in verse 24, it seems clear that their minds are made up and they're not interested in the facts. Give glory to God, they say. Ha, that's not what they mean. What they really mean is submit to us. We know best. And then they continue speaking about Jesus. We know that this man is a sinner. And the man born blind responds, I don't know whether he's a sinner. One thing I do know is I was blind and now I see. His response is not unlike that told of an English coal miner who came to faith in the 18th century Wesleyan revival. One lunchtime, some colleagues of the miner were mercilessly teasing him for his newfound faith. You don't really believe that Jesus turned water into wine, do you? They ask. The man replied, I don't really know whether Jesus changed water into wine. I wasn't there. But I do know one thing. In my house, Jesus changed beer into furniture. (laughs) The great irony in today's reading is that the only person who sees clearly is the one who was born blind. And as the story progresses, it's very interesting to see how he begins to see more clearly, not only in receiving his physical sight, but also his understanding increases. In response to the questioning from the neighbors, the the man describes Jesus as the man called Jesus. And then later, in response to the Pharisees, he calls him a prophet. And by the end of the story, after Jesus seeks him out and tells him plainly who he is, he says in verse 28, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. There are many people today who could testify to a similar increasing of their faith and understanding of God. And for many people, that understanding comes not as a result of a miraculous healing. And it can be a very gradual process. You may encounter Christ first as a, as a good man called Jesus. And later you come to understand him as a prophet. But only when we see him as Lord and Savior and we fall at his feet in worship will we ever see in the way that the man born blind came to see? Well, the final reaction to the healing miracle is, of course, ours. How do we react? How do you react? How well can you see? The disciples were blinded by their philosophical questions and their lack of compassion. The neighbors were blinded by their disbelief and skepticism. The parents were blinded by their fear and the Pharisees by their pride. What are the things that make it hard for you to see God? Jesus came into the world to give sight to the blind, to give hope to the hopeless, to give love to the loveless, and to give eternal life to all who would receive it. The key to seeing and knowing and understanding is paradoxically in realizing that we're blind. For then, we will be open to receive the light that Jesus offers. Now, even then, of course, it's possible for us to resist God's work in our lives. Jesus saw the blind man. He knew his need. He made the mud with his spit. He he touched his unseeing eyes, and 
he asked the man to do something. Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And it was only after he'd done that that he could see clearly. So I wonder, what might God be saying to you this morning? Is there an area of blindness that he is illuminating for you? Can you see it? And if so, what might he be asking you to do? Is he asking you to trust him? Maybe with something trivial like going to wash in the pool of Siloam. I I can't answer those questions for you. And so I want us to pause in silence for a moment. And I invite you to ask the Lord to show you his light and his love and to lead you and guide you to see what he would have you see. So let's do that now. Let's just pause and ask that question. Preacher and teacher John Stott once said, I think the great difficulty any Christian communicator or preacher has today is to have the courage to face the applications of Scripture in their own lives. This invitation to pause, to listen, to seek God, I find very challenging. I know in my head and in my heart that when I pause and allow God's space for him to show me more of himself, more of his will, he invariably does. So why am I so slow to make that time? If we will bring our blind spots, our weaknesses, our failures, our strengths, our achievements, all of whom we are, then by God's grace, Jesus enables us to receive new sight, the light and life that only he can give. And it is that light that we are called to shine in the darkness. Oh, Lord Jesus, come again and be our healer. Show us your mercy. Lighten our darkness. Let us pray. Oh, God, give us eyes to see what you are doing. Help us to see our own blindness, our own inability to fix ourselves or heal ourselves. Open our hearts and minds to receive what you want to give. Conform our wills to your will that beginning with us, those who are blind may receive sight and those who are lost may be found. Help us to see you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly. Amen.